All right. Ready to go on? Ready. Okay. There's a lot of changes we've all had to make during this time, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. That's why we're bringing you new episodes of Stories from the Floodplain, where a staff member from Prairie Rivers Network converses with experts in the worlds of water, energy, climate, food, and the list goes on. This episode features PRN water policy specialist Robert Hirschfeld as he talks with Dr. Rachel Haverlock, a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and founder of the university's Freshwater Lab. A special thanks to Dr. Haverlock for sitting down with us. I'm your host, Ryan Grasso. This is Stories from the Floodplain. Let's begin. So we are here with Dr. Rachel Haverlock from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you so much, Dr. Haverlock, for uh, agreeing to speak with us today. Um, like I said, you are a professor at UIC. You're also the founder and director of the UIC Freshwater Lab. Um, would you describe a little bit your academic and scholarly background and a little bit about um, what is the Freshwater Lab and what led you to create it? I always need to begin my water story with the fact that I'm a Great Lakes swimmer, uh, raised in Detroit, and I never met a body of fresh water that I didn't want to jump into and swim. So this meant, this made for a lot of contact with our waters and beaches in this part of the world. And also, as someone um, grew up in the 1970s and 80s, it also meant a fair amount of contact with industrial pollution and, and you know, really kind of economic and environmental ruin. But at the same time, whether it was the relationship with the water or just the, the great joy that I know we're all missing more right now of being at the beach with strangers, but you're all kind of united by this feeling of just being by these magnificent waters. So um, just grew up with the, the Great Lakes and Detroit River in my heart and soul. In my professional career, I actually started working on water in the Middle East through a long research project I conducted about the Jordan River that uh, the original Jordan River, that holy one um, that runs um, through the lowest place on earth, the Jordan Rift Valley. And I was really interested in the way that the Jordan River came to be a contested political boundary and how its status as a precious body of water in a quickly uh, drying region like how that might open up other political possibilities. And I became very involved with what's known as environmental peace building. And what we did in the, the Jordan Valley and proximate watersheds was to bring together mayors, teachers, community leaders, religious leaders, artists who share the same water source. And that means that those people that share the water source can be Israelis and Palestinians, Israelis and Jordanians, Jordanians and Palestinians, sometimes all three. And there's a very intense political conflict going on. But that process of sitting together with people as they come up with the standards of learning about their water 
and after establishing a baseline of shared knowledge, begin to plan for their future in real terms was so transformative. I mean, to really see sometimes when bombs are falling, um, how those relationships can endure when it's about something as valuable as water just continues to be a huge source of inspiration and hope. So the Freshwater Lab came about when I came back from a sabbatical in the Middle East and thought about my beloved lakes and that we are lucky not to have war in our region. We're certainly not facing issues of scarcity, but with our history of deindustrialization, of segregation, of environmental racism, of industrial pollution, I thought that this idea of reaching out to policymakers, elected officials, researchers, artists, activists, to really collectively re-envision our future in this region would be really productive. So the Freshwater Lab is there to produce media, policy, and on the ground projects and visions really taking us forward in, uh, in the Great Lakes watershed. And you're working with students from multidisciplinary, right? I mean, this is... Yeah. Yeah, so so the, describe how it functions a little bit with, with the students. Oh, yeah. So uh, every year there is a freshwater lab cohort and the students come from the English department and history, from public policy, from urban planning. I also am always glad to pull in scientists as well. But you know, really the idea, I'm not a scientist myself. I am a, I'm a humanist, a humanities person. And so you know, the relationship that we're really working on in the freshwater lab is that among humans, water, and other species, because the decisions that we make as a society determine both the quality and the quantity of water we experience. And that quality and quantity of water in turn has all these social impacts. So this is really like thinking about the social issues that surround water. And it's incredible. Um, the students come in, we have a really dynamic crash course in the Great Lakes and their history and their wonder and also their horrors. And we go around the city and tour water infrastructure, meet really interesting thinkers. And the students become empowered to be stewards of their own watershed. And they spend some time thinking about their skill set, the issues they care about, and they start producing projects to address something specific about, about the Great Lakes or this region. And then the Freshwater Lab supports them in trying to put this into practice, into making something happen, into entering into professional careers, starting a campaign, a movement, an event. And um, I'm happy to say we, um, there's somewhere between 20 and 30 Freshwater Labbers out there working at agencies. And it's just brought such a breath of youthful energy into the water space. And because UIC is a public urban university, I think it also helps our water agencies to look a little bit more like our city and our region. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, I should point out now that uh, Prairie Rivers Network has worked with a couple of people within the within the Freshwater Lab, and uh, I will just compliment you. That's a it's a great idea. It's also executed well, and everyone we've ever had contact with uh, within the Freshwater Lab, it's just gone brilliantly. So um, I really applaud your vision as well as how you've pulled it off. So um, you know, thank you for doing that on on within the university system it's it's something that's really powerful and, and helps us um, in the NGO world yeah I mean just um, a hats off to my students I mean there, there's so many of them but it, it, there's just kind of such a regenerative potential as we sort of think about water and we confront you know really some really pressing conundrums, you know, that people don't have answers to. And it's just incredible. I have so much excitement about the current generation. I mean, they've got a heavy load on their shoulders that um, I know I didn't have. I don't know about you, but like between the debt and the economy and the stress and the pandemic, I mean, it's a an environmental pollution. We can't forget about that. Like so much is on the back of this generation, but they get it. And I think the more that we can shift our political and social systems to put them in charge of their own future, especially environmentally, I think we'd be really uh, much better off with letting them move to the fore and, um, and, and just claim some more power, particularly now. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of those challenges and, and maybe how that power could be shifted. Um, you had, uh, you, well, since the Trump administration took office, you know, we've seen a concerted effort to roll back many environmental protections. Um, this happened before COVID, but since the uh, onset and in the aftermath of a global pandemic, that effort to gut environmental safeguards to air, water, land, uh, it's only increased, really. Um, you wrote an op-ed in the Chicago Reporter last month, um, you know, kind of pointing this out, but um, you were also uh, throwing out the idea that the community of people uh, who care about clean water, clean air, human health, um, how we might respond. So if, if you would, you know, describe a little bit um, the situation as you see it currently unfolding um, with the feds at EPA uh, regarding the enforcement of environmental protections? Yeah, we've really faced the complete perversion of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, this is not to denigrate the incredible work of people who've been in that agency and are, you know, keeping whatever they can afloat but when we look at the leadership appointed by the Trump administration, I mean, we are simply must call it the Environmental Destruction Agency. Again, not to, to downgrade what's been done by the staffers, but we've seen the rollback of the clean water rule, um, slashing standards for emissions, exactly when researchers have shown a correlation between poor air quality susceptibility to COVID-19 and death from COVID-19. And exactly when the closest thing we have to a vaccine 
is washing your hands. I mean, this is a vital moment to protect air, water, and land, and food systems, and exactly the opposite is going on. It, it's not a mystery why it's going on. The Trump administration was elected largely by money from the oil and gas industry and their financial backers to make it easier for them to extract money, extract water, and extract value from everything that's commonly held by us as Americans. Um, we can't tolerate it, like physically, legally, financially, it can't be tolerated. But at the same time, I signed many a petition to the EPA, but I don't think it falls on any kind of active ears. So I think it really is time to think at a different scale. I think that it's time for us. I mean, again, I'm, I am not advocating the disbanding of the EPA. I would like this current EPA um, to lose its public funding <laughs> to not regulate us. But I, I think that at present, we really need to work at a different scale. And I think water gives us the answer to the right scale. And that that scale is the watershed, right? That system of water that supports the drinking water, the food and the land that people and their families and their communities live on. Because some people might you know, deny climate change, not believe it, but nobody wants their source of drinking water to be polluted. I mean, you'd be really hard pressed to, to find someone that advocates for that. And so I think we've got to turn to, to that scale and we've got to do it really quickly. There's a particular precedent around the Great Lakes Basin that stems first of all from the fact that people love this water. Um, bipartisan across different ethnic and racial communities and people love this water here. And we see that even by lawmakers. I mean, one of the last remaining bipartisan bills is the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. So we've got a kind of a constituency around this water. We also have a long tradition of legislation and water quality standards simply for the Great Lakes. So what we need to do in this pandemic as all of the protections just get slashed by the federal government is we've got to constitute a new body to manage the Great Lakes. And I am completely certain that we have the scientific knowledge in our universities. We've got the community and historical knowledge from environmental justice and community groups. We've got the can-do power from NGOs. And we've got um, communications systems in place. So we really need to set up a body to regulate, to manage, to make decisions about our watershed as we are basically under attack by the federal government. And how do you think that happens? You know, who, mm -hmm. who hears that message? If, uh, you know, what could a listener to this do 
to push leaders to fill that gap that's being left by at the federal level. Um, you know, who needs to hear it? Who can take action? How do, how do you see that happening? Yeah, it's great. Um, it's a great question. So I think a lot of action could happen quickly because we have existing bodies that could have more authority. One of the, um, the agencies I have in mind is the International Joint Commission. It's like old organization since the US-Canadian Boundary Waters Act of 1909. But for example, the International Joint Commission, the IJC, has a water quality board. And it's got a fantastic group of people on it, including We the People Detroit's Monica Lewis-Patrick, For the Love of Waters, Liz Kirkwood, um, the head of the United Tribes of Michigan's Frank Edowagishik. It's a board that kind of looks like the Great Lakes. Now, they do incredible work but they don't have enforcement power. So one of the things that we need to do right now, the International Joint Commission, it's binational. Countries all over the world look to it as a model for how to manage water. I mean, I, you know, people from the Middle East, Europe, South America, Asia, they flock because like you figured out how to deal with water that crosses boundaries. So what we need to, um, to ramp up right away is that the IJC, has only the power to make recommendations, but not enforcement power. This is like pretty easy. So one thing that we would send out to um, our senators is a call that while water protections are, you know, are being um, slashed, really burnt through, we should give the IJC enforcement power. You know, that, that is already there. They've got the science, they've got local knowledge. They've been doing a lot better in having those boards reflect the people. What I think we also need to do, and here we are in Illinois, uh, during uh, the time of Governor Bruce Rauner, the state EPA was also pretty decimated. I went to an event where Governor Pritzker pledged to rebuild it you know, then this pandemic hit, obviously he's a bit busy, but I think that, um, that we need to have a more robust state system. But in the meantime, um, in the meantime, I think that we need to use like an organization, maybe like Healing Our Waters, you know, one that many of us attend. And I think we've got to start convening researchers, attorneys, people at the state level, um, maybe people from the federal EPA that are allowed to participate. Um, we've got to go and you know we know the history. We've got a Great Lakes water quality agreement. We've got Great Lakes restoration initiative. We have a basis on which to work. We've got a Great Lakes compact. Um, that really empowers the governors to determine how much water leaves the Great Lakes Basin. So, you know, it's also about writing to our governors and saying, look, we've got to extend the compact to deal with water quality. So, you know, these are the things um, I'd say, first of all, to listeners, like get in touch with Prairie Rivers, Fresh Water Lab, any number of groups, but we also kind of need to come together, check the egos at the door, because we've got to make sure there is a future in the Great Lakes Basin, and then we've got to make sure it's a beautiful future 
that is also set up to absorb people from other parts of the country that are um, going to become uninhabitable. I think we were already seeing the fragility and brittleness of some of our social institutions even before the pandemic hit. And that is just pushing them to the brink. Um, you know, we have entered a time in world history where some of the most pressing and emergent problems, pandemics, uh, pollution, um, climate change, these are supranational problems. Um, you know, is this a model that can address where we are failing? Uh, you know, I, I think all the time about how, you know, there is a lack of political will because, um, not because people don't understand the facts. I, I generally reject that idea. They know. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. choosing a different set of values, right? So people deny climate change or refuse to take action to address climate change because their system of values prioritizes something else, generally money, um, uh, power. But um, I've thought a lot about I've thought a lot about different systems of governance in the climate change context. So, you know, I, sometimes I thought like, what if we had a kind of loose organization of city states where you have massive amount of political and economic power, just for the sheer amount of people that live in kind of metro regions. Could places like New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, London, uh, you know, Tokyo, wherever, you know, could, could cities take action where federal governments are failing? Um, do you see what you're proposing as, is there a similarity there? Is there some way that, that these kinds of more regional compacts, that, you know, that, that finding new ways to link um, or cross over political boundaries could address some of these, these thorny issues that are, you know, 17th, 18th century political entities cannot seem to address? So in answer to your really sharp question, I'll, I'll start with uh, sloganeering. So if I were to answer it with a slogan, I'd say long live the Great Lakes Republic. <laughs> um, but to answer your question in, in a real way, just to affirm, you're absolutely right. The fragility of our systems, financial, social, healthcare, food, water, have entirely been exposed during this pandemic, but they weren't fragile just because. They're fragile because beginning in the 1970s and really accelerating in the past few decades, we have seen basically the defunding of these systems at the same time that they've been raided. And they've been raided by private equity. So let me just take a moment just to describe the private equity model because it is what is operative whether we're talking about higher education, bottled water, development, municipal water systems. Um, so what we've seen since the 70s is the massive defunding of the public. Now, you know, we have to stop even there about defunding because we pay taxes. 
And those taxes have not been going back to us, right? They have been going, they have been diverted again to um, private equity figures. So what happens with private equity? Well, let's take a municipal water system. You'll have a municipal water system built in the 50s or 60s when there was a lot of confidence, national confidence and federal funding. They were built to be huge, you know, big concrete systems with this kind of robust mid-century American confidence. And then they were defunded. Then that money disappeared. But the systems built to be big still had to be run. So then people said, well, the consumer should pay for it. But at the same time, that uh, shortfall in money made you know, meant there wasn't innovation, there wasn't adaptation, the system started to crumble, you couldn't add new staff, you couldn't train people. So then, you know, as waters defunded, city governments defunded, parks, schools, then, you know, people are, these um, institutions are told to go find revenue. So you try to get what you can out of customers, that ends up punishing low income people disproportionately low income people of color and who you know are charged the most for the most basic services and then you'll get a private equity player who will get a massive loan to buy up that water system using the collateral of the ratepayers they'll buy it up cut costs fire people lower wait times um, you know this happened in university park to flint it's all over the US and this happens everywhere, but let's use water. And then you've got a privatized system that doesn't serve people. And, you know, we have fragile systems. So yes, you're absolutely right. The fragility of our systems has been exposed because what the past, um, you know, 40 some years has proven is that a shrinking cadre of people Many of them in the federal government at present, Wilbur Ross is a, you know, Mnuchin, these are classic private equity figures, are so sickly wealthy. I mean, numbers and sums that are just gargantuan and excessive. And our systems are flailing and we're kind of multiply exposed. So the kind of really first step that I'm talking about is the reclamation of our infrastructure, of our, let's call them, not my favorite word, but let's call them natural resources, and our money to rebuild the systems that we need to live on. So, you know, any new political constellation that doesn't take back something like the close to $200 billion subsidy of oil and gas, or, you know, as, um, as you were so essential to explaining the billion a year, if I have that right, um, with which we subsidize the barge industry, you know, which, in which the Koch brothers are a major player. Like if, if we build systems without taking back the infrastructure, the resources and the money, then it's almost pointless. So we've got to build things where people like realize who the us is. And, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling so confident about the us as the United States right now. But like, again, I do know as a Great Lakes person 
that this water means a lot, that we've been through a really rough history that we're going through again right now. So I really do believe that this watershed is the right scale to move. I like the city model, but I worry um, at the way that in this same period of privatization, you know, cities have become like islands of capital and disenfranchisement right next to each other. So I, I'm not like totally set on that model, but I do think like, again, this like this watershed thing is really powerful. And I bring it up again, not just because I love the water, but because I've seen it operate in one of the most intractable conflicts in the world in the Middle East. I've seen this alternate political model emerge. And I, I think that's the right scale of operation. And in closing, with COVID-19, we see the Western States Confederation. We've seen, you know, basically it's called the Midwest, but it's basically the Great Lakes States plus Kentucky, you know, welcome in Kentucky. Um, and we've seen this on the East Coast. So we're seeing these consortia of governors and states. And that I can really see. I can really see us kind of breaking into regions and setting up alliances um, across. And the next powerful thing about that is if you're operating on a regional scale, you can also, you know, kind of take back all that global capital took away. Ambitious. Yes. Ambitious. I mean, you Very, know, got a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think we need to be thinking at that level though. I mean, I, I think we've got to question all the priors, <laughs> everything that we've been given, you know, is this appropriate for what we're asking it to do in 2020 and what we will be asking it to do in 2050. Um, obviously, this that's a that's a large undertaking. It involves massive amounts of coordination with with different levels. Um, so it's it's a long term project. Um, meanwhile, there are people who are on the front lines and um, they're thinking about day to day survival and what is coming out of the tap. Um, I wanted to ask you about what's been going on in the city of Chicago with utilities and um, particularly water, uh, water shutoffs um, during the COVID crisis. If you had um, any information you could provide on um, how the city is handling that. So on the topic of water shutoffs, we're talking about something that should not be the case, particularly in a city on Lake Michigan, but in particular, this should not be the case in a pandemic when all we have is the ability to wash. I mean, you know, this water is so key. So there's some good news and a lot of bad news. The good news is that um, last spring, about a year ago, Mayor Lightfoot declared a moratorium on water shutoffs. That was one of her early actions that she took in office and I completely laud it. It is the right move. 
there was also an affordability program, water affordability program that was set to launch sometime between March and April. Uh, I don't, my understanding is it's not rolled out because it wasn't ready when this happened. It's a, it's a fine plan. It's not, I think the greatest plan because it puts such an administrative burden on people who can be dealing, you know, with quite a lot, whether it's health issues or retirement or family issues. I mean, we, in Chicago, I have quite a few ideas about how we could make some good money with our water. And it's definitely not on the backs of retirees and mothers. So the affordability program didn't happen, but there were no water shutoffs, you know, since about a year ago. But this left people who had their water shut off before the moratorium and didn't get it turned on before this happened. And there is anywhere from a few hundred to, you know, maybe 1,100, maybe more households in the city that are in this situation. If you're in this situation, if you know someone in that situation, another piece of good no news is that there are community groups that really care. And ever since the pandemic began, groups like Blacks and Green, run by Naomi Davis in South Shore, Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, El Vejo and Little Village, their leaders have been out in front of this communicating with the city saying we've got to find these houses and we've got to get their water turned on. Some homes have been identified and those groups are working along with uh, another, um, another mention, Michigan's Freshwater Future has been a big player in this with Blacks and Green and Alvejo, you know, really, you know, person to person finding these homes, getting them what they need and getting the water turned on. This should be happening at the city level. Uh, apparently there are some barriers to doing that. Um, but anyone listening that finds it morally untenable for people to be without water, particularly during a pandemic, we are calling on Governor Pritzker to follow the governors of Michigan and Ohio in setting a statewide moratorium on water shutoffs, debt forgiveness, um, and a commitment to turn on water for every household in the state. You can find that letter through Food and Water Watch or Freshwater Future. So, you know, we're calling on um, state level intervention, but there, you know, there are remarkable leaders out there who really, really care about their neighbors and are doing every last thing they can. As this COVID-19 pandemic is unfolding, I see a lot of shock from people. And, you know, you're seeing the same demographic, you know, the same people in this country who are already burdened on so many other fronts are bearing the, the you know, the, the brunt of COVID-19. There's a scholar named Rob Nixon and he has a really important book. It's called Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. And he makes this differentiation between slow and fast violence. And the slow violence is citing a tar sands refinery, 
you know, next to people's homes on the shores of Lake Michigan, you know, kind of that ongoing assault on the poor and in particular low-income people of color, you know, this slow violence of toxicity and poisoning of water, air, and land. And I think you're absolutely right because, you know, quick violence is police brutality or this unchecked um, virus that, you know, no, we were not warned about, we were not told about, and we were not protected from. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's kind of this moment of fast violence that exposes the ongoing attacks of the slow violence of industrial pollution that again has disproportionate effects on low-income communities and even more disproportionate effects on people of color. The other aspect of all of this, that what this kind of quick violence is showing us is that the slow violence you know, is spreading, you know, because there's so much waste, so many byproducts from mining extreme forms of oil like fracking and tar sands, you know, the effect remains concentrated on indigenous people, Latinx communities, African American communities, it remains concentrated there. But there's so much waste and such excessive pollution that it's radiating outward anyway. So I think that even, you know, white Americans amidst this pandemic are realizing how sacrificial we are. And it's all the more exposed because the federal government makes it really clear, like how sacrificial we are. So it's this, I, I mean, again, it's this other moment of like horrifying epiphany really does kind of remind me of the biblical prophets, right? It's this moment of like horrifying epiphany that requires, you know, really deep social transformation. Dr. Haverlock, thank you so much. We I really appreciate your time and uh, everything you shared. Uh, is there anywhere that you would like to send listeners, anywhere else you'd like to send listeners, um, any online resources, your personal social media or uh, anywhere else that uh, anything else that you want to bring to people's attention? Everything you want to know about drinking water systems and pipes and Lake Michigan, we have tried to compile for you at freshwaterstories.com. So there are 12 stories all about water. And then if you're looking for productive use for your time in COVID-19, you can go to the freshwaterstories.com get involved page and spend some time learning about the source of your water, the pipes that convey it to you, and the people who you are connected to through your water source. So um, check out freshwaterstories.com and, and drop us a line about your responses and new knowledge as a result of, um, of engaging our activity. Great, thank you again. Thank you for your work with the Freshwater Lab and uh, thank you for the conversation today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. A special thank you to Dr. Haverlock for taking the time to talk with us. You can learn more about the Freshwater Lab at freshwaterlab.org. And thanks to PRN's very own Robert Hirschfeld for conducting the interview. 
You can become a member and support our work by visiting prairierivers.org. I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Haverlock. See you next time. I mean, to really see sometimes when bombs are falling, um, how those relationships can endure when it's about something as valuable as water just continues to be a huge source of inspiration and hope. Thank you.